Welcome back to the Down to Earth podcast. We're really excited to be joined today by Cyrus Cambada from Mastering Diabetes. Cyrus and his partner, Robbie, are the authors of New York Times bestselling book, Mastering Diabetes, where they offer a revolutionary method to permanently reverse insulin resistance and help maintain a healthy lifestyle. They've built a community of tens of thousands of members who have greatly benefited from following their approach. This episode will leave you educated, informed, and inspired to rethink your food choices, our food system, and the way you view nutrition. Here we go. Welcome to the Down to Earth Podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. We have lots of great questions for you today. We're excited to be chatting with you. And again, I want to thank you for joining us at this crazy time. Yeah, no worries. No worries. I appreciate the invitation and let's try and help people change their lives. That's for sure. Definitely. That's the goal. Well, I know a lot about your background, your story, and what ultimately led you to pursuing the field you're in, writing the amazing book that you wrote. And so I'd love if you could share a little bit more about your background and your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. I was diagnosed with three autoimmune conditions at the age of 22 which kind of threw my world upside down. I was a senior at Stanford University and I was just trying to graduate and move on with my life. And I noticed that when I was studying for finals over the course of like a three or four day period that my thirst was just out of control. It's reasonable to drink four or five glasses of water per day, but I was drinking 20, 25 glasses of water per day. And it just felt like every time I drank water, I got thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. In addition to that, I was also very low energy. And because I was taking on so many fluids, I would go to urinate 17, 18, 20 times a day, like clockwork every 30 minutes. So I picked up the phone and I called my sister, who's a doctor of osteopathy, and I explained all my symptoms to her. And she started crying immediately. She said, Cyrus, just go straight to the health center. You are explaining that you have type 1 diabetes. And I didn't know anything about diabetes or human physiology at that point. So I said, what are you talking about? Diabetes is about old people and cake. I'm not (laughs) old. I don't eat cake. What are you talking about? So she said, Cyrus, I don't have time to explain, just go. So I show up at the health center half an hour later. They check my blood glucose and it's over 600. Anybody's glucose is supposed to be between about 80 and 130 on any given day at any moment in time. And uh, mine was six times higher than it was supposed to be. So they rushed me to the hospital. In the hospital, they give me uh, an IV of saline into one arm to rehydrate me because I was actually terribly dehydrated. And then they also gave me a drip irrigation of insulin into the other arm. And the whole purpose was to try and bring my blood glucose back down and then teach me how to live my life with a new diagnosis of insulin-dependent type 1 diabetes. So while I was in the hospital, not only did they diagnose me with type 1 diabetes, they also gave me an official diagnosis on two other conditions that I had also been developing over the course of the previous six months. So the first one was Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. And the reason I knew that I, something was wrong was because I was extremely low energy about six months prior to that. And I just felt like every time I got out of bed, like I was run over by a train and I knew that it just didn't feel right. And so the doctors had sort of like given me an informal diagnosis of Hashimoto's. But then when I was in the hospital getting diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, it was sort of finalized. And then in addition to that, I had also developed hair loss. So like my, my hair was falling out in patches on my scalp 
And then it was also falling out on my chest and on my legs as well. And, and I was like, wait, what's going on here? So it turns out that I actually developed a, another condition called alopecia universalis. And that's just a fancy scientific term for total hair loss. So in the hospital, they gave me three autoimmune disease diagnoses. And 24 hours later, I was discharged from the hospital with three autoimmune conditions, prescription for two different types of insulin, a blood glucose meter, prescription for test strips to use on the blood glucose meter, prescription for syringes, a carbohydrate counting guide that taught me how to determine how much insulin to give myself, and then a life alert bracelet that basically said, hey, if I'm passed out on the sidewalk, call 911. So that all happened within a 24-hour period. And as you can imagine, it kind of threw me for a loop. So when I went back to my normal life, the doctors had given me a prescription for eat a low-carbohydrate diet because the low-carbohydrate diet is the only way to manage your blood glucose and the only way to prevent against increasing insulin use over time. So I did that and I started to eat lower carbohydrate foods, which means foods that contain more fat and more protein. So I was eating things like turkey burgers and chicken and peanut butter and dairy and fish and olive oil. And I was really trying to like keep my total carbohydrate count down and trying to minimize my intake of fruits and rice and quinoa and breads and cereals and pastas and potatoes. And so it was supposed to normalize my blood glucose, but it didn't do that. My glucose was all over the place. It was kind of a nightmare. And in addition to that, my insulin use was also creeping up over time. It started out at like 23, 25 units a day. And then before I knew it, it was up to 30, 35, 36, 38, 42, 45. Some days I had to inject 55 units of insulin and my glucose was all over the place. And I just was like, what is going on? This doesn't make any sense. So long story short, I ended up uh, just opening my mind to the idea that maybe there was a different way. And maybe there was a different type of nutrition that I could follow that would give me better results. And I just started learning and talking to people and reading books. And one thing led to another. And this idea of becoming a plant-based eater just popped into my consciousness. And, and it was being reinforced in multiple different ways. So I said, huh, plant-based eater, that, that's cool. Like, I don't really know anything about this. So like, oh, I'm willing to try. And under the guidance of a nutrition professional, his name is Dr. Doug Graham, who went on to write a book called The 80-10-10 Diet. He basically took me under his wing and said, hey, Cyrus, like, I'm going to teach you how to eat a, a fully plant-based diet, and you're going to feel like a million bucks, and uh, let's see what it does to you. So under his supervision, over the course of a week, I transitioned my diet away from this low-carbohydrate philosophy to a low-fat plant-based whole food diet. And there I was eating lots of fruits and lots of vegetables. That's literally all I ate for the first seven days, just fruits and vegetables. And I was nervous that my insulin use was going to skyrocket. And I was nervous that my blood glucose was going to skyrocket because that's the story that I had been told. That's the rhetoric in the diabetes world. When you eat carbohydrates, your glucose is going to go up. So I believed that. But what I noticed was that when I switched over to a plant-based diet, not only was I eating 600 grams of carbohydrate per day, but my insulin use went in the opposite direction and it started to come down. So it went from 45 units down to 32, down to 27, down to 23 units within one week. So I was using less insulin, I was eating more carbohydrate, but in addition to that, I had more energy, I was more hydrated, my glucose was much more controllable, and honestly, I just felt like a million bucks. So I went back to school and I said, you know what, this is fascinating. I really wanna understand what's happening inside of me and see if this is also applicable to other people living with diabetes. And so at that point, I enrolled in a PhD program and I went to go study at UC Berkeley for five years so that I could really understand the like molecular level details of what is happening. 
So I studied nutritional biochemistry, and there I was able to really delve into the deep science of what causes diabetes, how does type 1 differ from type 2, what components of your diet increase your disease risk, and what components of your diet reverse disease risk. And while I was there, I, I really delved into this concept of insulin resistance, which we can talk more a lot about. But the idea here is that insulin resistance is the condition that causes blood glucose instability. And once you really understand what insulin resistance is, then the whole thing makes sense. But I had an opportunity to like deep dive into insulin resistance and wrote a thesis on it and um, have been using those concepts now to teach people all around the world how to transition towards a plant-based diet so that they can achieve incredible health and literally eliminate this thing called insulin resistance, which plagues hundreds of millions of people around the world. Wow. I mean, that's an incredible story. And I commend you for taking those challenging diagnoses, but actually opening your mind to trying different things. Because we see so many people, I mean, we have distant family members and friends that have diabetes and typically they just follow their doctor's protocol, which oftentimes has things completely opposite of what it should be. But I, I really commend you for taking that risk and opening your mind to trying different things and to ultimately discovering such an amazing way of living. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. It's a lot of the times it's like when you feel like crap, you got to do whatever you can to make yourself not feel like crap. <laughs> and that's just kind of what I felt like I was doing. Definitely. And now you're able to help so many others. So that's really wonderful. Now we see diabetes, both type one and type two rates are really on the rise. Even with children, we see type two diabetes. So can you speak to your viewpoints on this medical challenge that so many people are facing along with for people who don't know what insulin resistance is, let's mm -hmm. talk about that as well. Okay. So just from a statistics perspective, I know everybody hates statistics, but it's important here. Right now in the United States, there are 30 million people who have been diagnosed with all forms of diabetes, whether it's type 1, 1 1.5, pre-diabetes, type 2, gestational diabetes. So the total number of people with diabetes is 30 million. And the United States population is, what is the number, like 350 million or so. But in addition to the 30 million people that are living with diabetes that have been diagnosed, there are 85 million more people who are living with undiagnosed prediabetes or undiagnosed diabetes. So if you add those two numbers together, you get 115 million people. And that is approximately one third of the US population that is living with some form of diabetes. But again, only 30 million of those people know about it. The other 85 million have no idea that they have it. And that's a scary statistic because that means that if you just go out in public and you just count the number of people in any one given area, you divide that by three and then boom, that's what's happening. That's how many people are living with diabetes. And again, insulin resistance is the underlying cause of blood glucose instability. And what insulin resistance really is in a nutshell, it is a condition that is caused by the accumulation of excess dietary fat in tissues that are not designed to store large quantities of fat. So I'll say that one more time. Insulin resistance is caused by the accumulation, the excess accumulation of dietary fat in tissues that are not designed to store large quantities of fat. Okay. So the way that insulin resistance really develops is, I'm sure you guys have probably seen this in the world today, the ketogenic diet is like the most popular dietary craze that has ever swept across the planet. Yeah. Right. I'm sure you guys have seen this. Oh okay. yeah. So the ketogenic diet is like one flavor or one version, I'll call it, of a low-carbohydrate diet or low-carbohydrate philosophy. But the low-carbohydrate philosophy started many, many years ago. It started back in the 1970s with the original invention of the Atkins diet. And then it was repopularized again in the 90s by Atkins version two, 
And then it turned into the South Beach diet, then the zone diet, then the paleo diet, and then now it's the ketogenic diet. And so all along the way, there've been sort of like different versions of this low carbohydrate philosophy. And all of it is founded upon the fact that carbohydrates are your enemy. Carbohydrates will make you fat. Carbohydrates will make you secrete excess insulin. Carbohydrates will make you more diabetic. So don't eat carbohydrates because carbohydrates are the enemy. And so there are millions of people around the world that have learned this information. They believe this information and they practice eating a ketogenic diet and they see awesome results. And the results that they get are things like weight loss, like rapid weight loss, and they get improved digestion and they get lower cholesterol, value, lower total cholesterol, and they get lower blood pressure values and they get lower fasting insulin and improved blood glucose control. And the list goes on. And so people who adopt a low carbohydrate philosophy oftentimes find that their diabetes health has improved and their cardiovascular health has improved and they lost weight. And so if you do a ketogenic diet and you see those results, then you have no reason to stop, right? Because you're thinking, okay, great. Well, I'm doing this diet. It's, it's resulting in all these positive metabolic improvements. Great. I'm going to keep doing it. So what ends up happening though, is that when you're eating a ketogenic diet or any version of a low carbohydrate diet, your predominant macronutrients are fat and protein. Okay, so you're, you're minimizing your carbohydrate intake to something like 30 grams of carbohydrate per day total. Some low carbohydrate philosophies allow you to eat upwards of like 75, maybe about 100 grams of carbohydrate per day. And regardless of whether you're eating 30 or 75 or 50, somewhere in the middle, the bulk of your nutrients comes from protein and fat. Okay, so a well-designed ketogenic diet in today's world contains 70 to 80% dietary fat, of 70 to 80% calories, dietary fat, and then the remainder comes from protein and a small amount of carbohydrate energy. Okay, so we're talking like 70, 20, 10 in terms of fat, protein, carbohydrate, or something like 80, 10, 5, okay, a very small amount of carbohydrate. So when you do that, what ends up happening is that the predominant macronutrient that's coming in your mouth is actually dietary fat. And dietary fat is actually found in food as triglyceride. So triglyceride is literally just a fancy scientific way of describing the structure of fatty acids in nature. And that means that there are three fatty acids attached to a glycerol. So glycerol with three fatty acids equals triglyceride. So you consume triglycerides, whether it comes from chicken or red meat or dairy products or cheese or olive oil, or even plant-based fats like avocados and nuts and seeds and olives and coconuts. So you consume a lot of these fat-rich foods and the triglycerides that are in these foods end up entering your mouth, they travel down your esophagus, and they get into your stomach. In your stomach, there's like a, they, they start being unfolded. They start sort of being broken down and digested. And then when they get inside of your small intestine, that's where the bulk of nutrient digestion and absorption happens. So you can think of your small intestine as basically being a bioreactor. And inside of this bioreactor, you have multiple tissues that are dumping digestive enzymes to specifically break down the components of the food that you're eating. So your liver secretes digestive enzymes into your small intestine. Your pancreas secretes digestive enzymes into your small intestine. And your small intestine itself makes its own digestive enzymes. And the net effect of all three of those tissues pouring digestive enzymes into your small intestine is that when food that's partially broken down gets inside of your small intestine, these enzymes continue to break it down and break it down and break it down and break it down so that it's broken down into the smallest possible parts. And then those smallest parts are then absorbed through the walls of your small intestine and they enter your blood, at which point your blood can transport them to tissues so that they can be used for energy or to be stored. So when it comes to these triglyceride molecules, these triglycerides end up in your small intestine 
they get acted upon by these digestive enzymes. They're called lipases. And these lipases basically rip apart the glycerol from the three fatty acids. These fatty acids are then absorbed across the wall of your small intestine, and they get into these particles inside of your lymph system, and they're called chylomicrons. These chylomicrons end up getting inside of your blood, and they act as like small transport vesicles to be able to distribute fatty acids to tissues all throughout your body. And so your adipose tissue or your fat tissue is the main location where fatty acids are, are delivered. And that's okay because your fat tissue is specifically designed from an enzymatic perspective to be able to uptake fatty acids from your blood when they are present. So a simple way to think about this is if those chylomicron particles just deliver those fatty acids to your adipose tissue and only your adipose tissue, then most of diabetes wouldn't really exist. And the reason I say that is because your adipose tissue, again, is a safe place to keep these fatty acids. But what ends up happening is that these chylomicron particles, they distribute fat to your, to your adipose tissue. And then in addition to that, they also deliver fat to your muscle and they deliver fat to your liver. And that's where the problem begins because your muscle and liver are capable of absorbing and uptaking small amounts of fatty acid from chylomicron particles, but they are not designed enzymatically or structurally to uptake large quantities of fatty acids from your blood at any given moment in time. And they're certainly not designed to be able to uptake large amounts of fatty acids from your blood on a daily basis over and over and over and over again every time you eat food. So what ends up happening over the course of time, if you're eating a, a ketogenic diet, as an example, is that you eat a high fat breakfast, you eat a high fat lunch, you eat a high fat dinner. You do that again tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next week, the next month. And over the course of time, your liver and muscle end up being forced to absorb fatty acids from these chylomicron particles, even though it exceeds their enzymatic capacity to be able to do so. And so your liver and fat actually end up with, with an excess accumulation of fatty acids. And when they overaccumulate fatty acids, then they basically try and protect themselves against more and more and more energy from coming into the tissue. So if they could block fatty acids from coming into the tissue, they would, but they just can't do it because they don't have the right machinery. But what they can do is they can block insulin because insulin is a master signal that basically tells tissues, hey, there's stuff in the blood, there's energy in the blood, take it up now. And so if your liver and muscle are in a position where they're trying to block energy from coming in, what they do is they say, okay, great, let's stop responding to insulin. Because if we do, we can block all this energy from coming in and they can block glucose from coming in. They can block amino acids and they can block some fatty acids. So they initiate this thing called insulin resistance. It's literally like they're building a wall against insulin. They're saying, we don't want to pay attention to insulin anymore. Go away, insulin. So the next time you eat something as small as like one banana or maybe a small bowl of quinoa or some black beans, right? Anything that contains carbohydrate, the glucose from those carbohydrate molecules ends up going to the, the liver and muscle trying to get in because that's where the glucose belongs. Insulin knocks on the door, knock, knock. Hey, muscle. Hey, liver. I got this glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? And the liver and muscle respond by saying, are you kidding me? I'm not paying attention to you right now. Go away. Like, we're, we're doing insulin resistance. You're, you're gone. And so insulin gets trapped in the blood. It's like, well, I can't do anything. And then glucose gets trapped in your blood and glucose can't go anywhere as well. So what happens is that when you have an overaccumulation of fatty acids inside of your muscle and liver, it causes a metabolic traffic jam that makes it so that you can no longer metabolize glucose effectively. And that's exactly why people who eat a ketogenic diet or some kind of low carbohydrate diet find that the minute they eat something that's carbohydrate rich, their blood glucose goes through the roof. It goes up to 150, 180, 200, 220. And then their conclusion is, 
oh, I told you bananas are bad for me. Potatoes are bad for me, right? But what they're not paying attention to is the fact that before you ate the banana, before you ate the potato, before you had that bowl of quinoa, you consumed a whole collection of fat-rich foods that caused the traffic jam. So what I would recommend doing is first fix the traffic jam, and then you will be able to metabolize those carbohydrate-rich foods because those carbohydrate-rich foods are actually very nutrient-dense and they were never the enemy to begin with. So if you fix the traffic jam that caused insulin resistance by reducing your total fat intake, then you can easily metabolize carbohydrate energy exactly the way that your muscle and liver were designed to be able to do. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I really love the way that you describe it. And I wish that more doctors would explain this to their patients. Because as you said, the statistics for diabetes have been rising, but so have low-carb diets, like you said, Atkins in the 70s. And we have to understand that they're probably related. Like you said, with increased fats, lower carbohydrates, we see diabetes rising. Something is wrong and something needs to be fixed. Absolutely. And you know what even frustrates me a little bit more is that if you go into the evidence-based research and you search on PubMed, which is like this giant, it's like the Google of research, and you'll find that there are a lot of publications these days. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot of publications that utilize a low-carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet, and they find that their patients, again, lose weight, lower their glucose values, lower their insulin values, and generally improve their diabetes health. And they report that in the literature as a diabetes reversal. And it's really frustrating to see this thing because what they're doing is they're not actually reversing diabetes. Because if you were reversing diabetes, you would have to reverse insulin resistance. There's just no way to reverse prediabetes and type 2 diabetes without reversing insulin resistance. It's biologically impossible. The problem though, is that what they're doing is they're saying, hey, look, the biomarkers improved the appearance of diabetes has improved. And the reason that the appearance of diabetes has improved is number one, because people are losing weight and that's a good thing. But number two, because they're playing the carbohydrate avoidance game. And so when you really lower your carbohydrate intake, then yeah, your blood glucose will become more stable and you're going to secrete less insulin, right? So from a numerical perspective, it looks like you're reversing diabetes. But again, the minute that you consume anything carbohydrate rich, whether it's a banana, whether it's a bowl of quinoa, whether it's a bowl of white rice, or if you were to go to the clinic and take this thing called an oral glucose tolerance test, which is truly the most important test for insulin resistance. If you took that test living in a ketogenic state, chances are you would fail that test. Because again, the amount of glucose in that solution that you're drinking, 75 grams, exceeds your body's ability to be able to metabolize it. And yet the problem is that the research says a ketogenic diet reverses type 2 diabetes, which is not as a factually incorrect statement, but yet medical professionals and researchers see that, they believe it, they don't dive deep enough. And as a result of that, the ketogenic philosophy continues to be applauded. And now it's becoming more and more and more popular, even within a medical institution. And that's, that's the frustrating thing for me. Definitely. And I mean, it's so interesting that something like the ketogenic diet becomes so trendy and popular and so widespread. Whereas, you know, the protocol that you recommend and the way that I personally eat as well, I follow a plant-based diet is really built around timeless principles of just eating, you know, whole foods in their natural state and consuming things that come directly from nature. Yeah, exactly right. It's not a complicated concept in any way, shape or form. It's just that like, unfortunately, I mean, I tell people this all the time, biochemistry, human biochemistry is a, it's a, it's a complicated, but very elegant science. It really is. And it basically says, if you pull this lever, 
then these other things are likely to change. And if you pull this lever, then these things are likely to change. And once you understand how these pathways interconnect with one another, which can take a lot of time, but once you really understand it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's very actually like a simplistic philosophy. But what ends up happening is that on social media and in the news and within amongst the medical community, people are constantly criticizing one another. And then they're analyzing one another. Then they're analyzing the critique of one another. And then they're criticizing the analysis of the critique of one another. And it it gets to a point where the science is lost. It's gone. It doesn't even exist anymore. And what people are talking about and what causes controversy is the analysis of the analysis of the analysis. And then before you know it, it's like people are doing whatever they want to do. And the science, which is truly elegant, just ceases to to make any difference. Definitely. And people are still left uneducated on how their bodies actually work, which is why I really love what you and Robbie both do is you really educate the masses and people who are living with diabetes actually know what's going on in their bodies biochemically. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That's one of the things that we really want to do is make it so that it's, it's simple enough for people to understand. And um, we hope that that's actually coming through. Yeah, it definitely does. Now, people with diabetes, you know, mainstream media doctors tell them that eating fruits is restricted for diabetics. And I know you talk about rice and carbohydrates. So why is it that this is an actually safe protocol for people living with diabetes? And I know that you bring up a lot of research that you've read. So I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the research that you found as well. So yeah, there's this sort of fruit phobia. People always say fruits are bad for you. Fruits are going to make you fat. Fruits are just packets of sugar. That's all they are. There's packets of sugar and they're going to make you more diabetic. And it's just too simplistic of a philosophy, right? So if you make the statement that a fruit equals sugar, then what it means is that you are not paying attention to all of the other nutritional components that exist within a fruit. So the truth is that when you're eating a mango or you're eating a banana, right? You're not just eating a collection of sugar. I even hate the word sugar in the first place because it's misleading. Really what you're eating is a complex three-dimensional object that contains many, many hundreds, if not thousands of nutrients inside of it. And it's the interaction between all of these nutrients that actually confers a health benefit. Okay. So if a banana was literally just a pile of sugar, then it would have the same effect as eating a tablespoon or multiple tablespoons of table sugar. And we know from a research perspective that that is not a true statement at all. So I'll talk about the research in one second, but what fruits are, are again, they're three-dimensional complex packets of information. And the packet is held together by fiber. Have you guys ever seen a, uh, like a skyscraper being built or like a highway overpass being built before? Yes. Okay. So when it comes to like a highway overpass, as an example, before they pour any of the concrete, what they do is they, like, they create the structure of the columns and the structure of the overpass itself. And they, they make a frame for it using this stuff called rebar, right? So there's like actually metal rods that are creating the structure and then they frame the entire thing in wood and then they get the concrete trucks to come over and then pour concrete into the frame and from the outside when you look at it when it's finally finished you look at oh okay cool it's a column of concrete right but on the inside it's actually concrete that's held together by metal rebar and it's the rebar that's actually giving it, it's reinforcing its strength and it's making it resistant to earthquakes and beyond so in the same way a fruit has its own rebar built into it. And the rebar is fiber. So that rebar is basically there to give it a a shape and a texture. And that within that rebar, within that fiber, you have carbohydrates, protein, and 
fat, just like we talked about earlier. So you got the three macronutrients, carbohydrate, fat, protein. In addition to that, you also have vitamins, minerals, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. And so it's these macronutrients and micronutrients that are densely packed within this rebar structure that make it such that when you eat the mango or you eat the banana, it takes time for your digestive system to unpack the nutrients that are held within the fiber matrix. And as a result of that, when it enters your mouth and it travels down your esophagus and finally gets inside of your small intestine, inside of your small intestine, there is a a significant challenge that's posed to all the tissues. And these digestive enzymes have to work and they have to get access to the carbohydrate energy. They got to get access to the vitamins. They have to get access to the micronutrients in order to really allow these things to come out of the fiber network. And then the small intestine can absorb them and then transfer them to the blood. So as a result of that, it takes time, it takes work. What ends up happening is that you see in the research that when people consume fruits, the fruits don't spike your blood glucose like many people would like you to believe. So there's this idea that like, hey, if I eat a banana, then all of a sudden my glucose is going to hit a 200 and it's going to hit a 200 within the first 30 minutes of eating the banana and therefore I should never eat a banana. But what you'll find is that if you actually, if you look at the research, you actually find that people who are consuming whole food carbohydrates, including fruits. And in addition to fruits, also things like starchy vegetables and or green leafy vegetables and or legumes and or whole grains. When you're combining those foods together and you're making a meal, which is what most people do, and you consume that meal, the meal is absorbed at a totally physiologically reasonable rate. And as a result of that, your blood glucose doesn't spike. Your blood glucose rises and then your blood glucose hits a peak, somewhere around 130, 140, and then your blood glucose comes all the way back down. And it does that within about an hour to two hours after you finish the meal. So your blood glucose does this, it does an excursion in terms of your blood glucose rises a little bit, and then it comes right back down. And it's considered a normal physiological response. And so when you're consuming whole food carbohydrates, because the whole food carbohydrates are relatively complex in their three-dimensional structure, it allows for a normal blood glucose response. And that's a good thing. Okay. So let's contrast that against the sugar that people seem to be afraid of. Okay. And for full clarity, I am not advocating that people eat sugar in any way, shape, or form. In fact, if you try and take a look at the one of the things that most people in the health world will all agree upon, it's don't eat packaged and refined processed sugar, right? I don't care if you're from a ketogenic philosophy or paleo philosophy or whole food philosophy. The idea is nobody is telling you to eat more sugar, myself included. So that's a good thing. So when we're talking about sugar, we're talking about table sugar, we're talking about high fructose corn syrup, sorbitol, mannitol, dextrose, any of these synthetic sugars that are made in a manufacturing facility. Okay? Now these guys, what ends up happening is that they, once they get inside of your digestive system and they end up in your small intestine, they're usually put into packaged and processed foods. And the packaged and processed foods by nature have been processed. They've gone through a manufacturing process. And by going through a manufacturing process, their fiber content is dramatically reduced. And their vitamin and mineral content is dramatically reduced. Their antioxidant content is almost completely wiped out. And so as a result of that, from a nutrient perspective, you're getting a lower quantity and a lower quality of overall nutrients. So now you're consuming a food that has a lower quantity and a lower quality of micronutrients. The fiber isn't there to protect against a large blood glucose swing. And they also have added refined sweeteners 
So when you put that into your digestive system, then your digestive system doesn't have to work as hard. It doesn't take as much time to get access to those nutrients. And it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't take as much time to get access to those refined sweeteners. So the added glucose, the added high fructose corn syrup, all of that stuff can get extracted and pulled across the walls of your small intestine and put into your blood much quicker. And when that happens, you consume those foods and then boom, your blood glucose is on the rise. It's on the rise much faster than you would get from a whole food meal. And sometimes it can even go higher and it can stay higher for a longer period of time. So that's a long-winded way of me saying that there is a fundamental difference, a completely biologically fundamental difference between the way that a refined sweetener behaves in your body versus the way that a whole food carbohydrate behaves in your body. And unfortunately, people lump the two of them into the same category. And the category is called carbs, okay? Don't eat carbs. Carbs are bad for you. Carbs will make you fat. Carbs will increase your, your cholesterol level. Carbs will make you more diabetic, right? We cannot evolve as a society talking about this stuff called carbs because it's too vague to really provide any valuable information. Okay, so we have to separate out the refined and packaged and processed carbohydrates like, like cookies and crackers and waffles and chips and pastries and sodas from the whole food carbohydrates like fruits and starchy vegetables and legumes and whole grains. And once you make just that distinction unto itself, you will find that there is a totally different carbohydrate metabolism that unfolds. And the carbohydrate metabolism that unfolds when you're eating whole food carbohydrate is magical, is magical. And it actually prevents and reverses chronic diseases versus the biology that unfolds when you're eating refined sweeteners that are put into packaged and processed foods that actually promotes chronic diseases. And so we have to separate them. Otherwise, we're not going to really understand it. Absolutely. And I definitely get really frustrated when people just say, you know, sugar is sugar. So I'm glad that you broke it down and really gave us the science of what's in a fruit, for example, versus a candy bar. Now I've heard you speak about Dr. Kempner's rice fruit diet, which I thought was really fascinating. Oh yeah, for sure. Dr. Kempner is one of my favorites. So Dr. Kempner was a researcher based out of Duke University back in the 1950s. And what he did was he was trying to cure malignant hypertension. So malignant hypertension is basically think of it as high blood pressure that they did not think was solvable. They did not think was reversible. And so Walter Kempner had this hypothesis that he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. People are saying that carbohydrates are actually causing high blood pressure and that when you eat more refined carbohydrates or even whole carbohydrates, that somehow that's causing the situation. And so he was like, wait a minute, I don't think that's the case because I, I'm pretty sure that it's animal-based foods that are actually contributing to worsened vascular health in general. So what he did was he set out to actually reverse malignant hypertension. And the way that he did it was by creating this thing called the rice fruit diet. So the rice fruit diet is basically, it contained four types of foods, I'll say. The first one is fruits. The second one is fruit juice. The third one is white rice. And the fourth one is added sugar. Okay. So he literally told people, eat fruits and fruit juice and rice. And you can even add table sugar to food. I don't care. Just only those four groups and don't eat anything else. And so what he was trying to teach people is he's like, listen, carbohydrates are not the enemy, right? Let's do an experiment to try and find out. So what he found out was that when people ate the rice fruit diet, not only were they able to lower their blood pressure. And when I say lower their blood pressure, I mean really lower their blood pressure. He took people who were living with uncontrolled hypertension with a starting blood pressure of like 230 over 170. 
Okay, we're talking like significantly elevated blood pressure. So 230 over 170, over the course of like 40 to 60 days, he would go from that blood pressure all the way downwards to uh, about 130 over 90. And he, he saw this repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again. And he was noticing that not only was their blood pressure coming down, but they were actually able to reverse diabetes as well. And so Walter Kempner actually went down in history as being, number one, the guy that reversed malignant hypertension. And number two, the guy that invented the rice fruit diet that was having a significant impact on reversing type 2 diabetes. He also found that there were a number of other benefits, including improved liver health and increased kidney health at the same time. And he also found another thing is that diabetic neuropathy, which is like nerve tingling that happens in people's fingers and toes as a result of high blood glucose, that that went away at the same time. So what's really crazy is that that he invented a diet that used four foods or four groups of foods that even today, we're in 2020, 70 years later, the diabetes world is telling you don't eat those foods. Yeah. It's crazy when you go on the main diabetes website, the foods that they recommend, the food pyramid that they show is completely, completely twisted. (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? It's like, I mean, people um, living with any form of diabetes, I mean, even non-diabetic individuals are saying, are being taught, don't consume fruit juice, don't consume fruits or minimize your fruit intake. Certainly don't eat white rice Yeah, because white rice will kill you. Right. And certainly don't consume sugar. But Walter Kempner 70 years ago basically was like, oh, hey, if I create a diet that contains only those four food groups, I can actually reverse conditions that are plaguing many of my patients. And those are the same, the exact same conditions which have only grown in prevalence over the past 70 years. Yeah, that's wild. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, that's insane. And I'm glad that you're sharing this with us because people, I feel like in general, even though they're not following a ketogenic diet, they still focus too much on protein and too much on you know things that we call good fats. But it's important to balance out your diet with whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and foods that actually do contain carbs in them. A hundred percent. I fully agree with you. Give me some insight. What type of diet do you eat? Because you said that you're eating a plant-based diet, right? So I eat a plant-based diet and I honestly eat lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, and lots of whole grains and legumes. Okay. Like pretty much. So yeah. That's pretty much my entire diet. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much yeah, my entire incredible. diet. I eat, you know, that's incredible. pasta, but I eat higher qualities of pasta. So like brown rice pasta, quinoa pasta. Again, if I go out to an Italian restaurant and it's, you know, just regular generic pasta, I'll still have it. I'll have mm-hmm. bread once in a while. I'm not a big sweet tooth guy unless it's, you know, just like naturally sweetened with fruits or a healthier alternative, but I don't restrict myself. And in terms of like portions, I have friends when I first transitioned to a plant-based diet, they were like, you really have to watch your sugar intake because they would see like my bowl of fruit in the morning and it's massive. It's literally a platter. Mm-hmm. And they're like, that can't be good for you. And I felt great, you know, from the get-go and I still feel great. So it definitely works for me. Yeah, that's incredible. And what was the reason that you got into it in the first place? Were you trying to battle some type of uh, chronic disease or were you just interested in the idea? I was interested in the idea. Even from a young age, I was always drawn more to fruits, vegetables. I always liked carbs. I was never a, a huge, huge animal protein guy. When I had it growing up, I would have limited amounts of it. And it typically was more so fish than, you know, than chicken or meat. And then just throughout the years, I would just limit it more and more at the time without like a specific intention. And then as I got more educated about it, you know, for me, it's a combination of health benefits as well as animal rights. I I personally feel that, you know, when you have so many good, clean plant-based options to eat out there, you know, why does another living creature have to die in order for you to, you know, fill your stomach? So for me, it's a combination of both. I also think that just for health reasons, the research that I've seen and the way that I personally feel I do believe that we're meant to eat this way. 
For sure. I could not agree with you more. Can I tell you guys actually one more study that came out in the 1970s, which I think was mind-blowing? Yeah, please share. Okay, cool. So to follow up on Walter, Walter Kepner's work in the 1950s, there was a lot of criticism from the scientific community and people were saying, oh, well, Walter, you didn't get those results because of the foods that these people were eating. You got those results because people lost weight. And if you take a look at the research, yeah, his people lost weight for sure, right? And so what I said earlier about the ketogenic diet is that you know, when you lose weight, a lot of those other metabolic improvements come along for the ride, which is a true statement. And so in 1979, come along two researchers named James W. Anderson and Kyleed Ward. And they were like, oh, okay, well, this is an interesting concept. What if we could design a study whereby we would transition people from eating a you know, typical diabetes, sort of like lower carbohydrate diet to a whole food plant-based diet that's high in carbohydrate energy and do it where we control for weight loss? In other words, couldn't we do it and prevent people from losing any weight? And so what they did was they enrolled 20 subjects who had been living with type 2 diabetes for up to 20 years. And they fed these patients a low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet, and they demanded that they eat enough to prevent against weight loss. And they actually told them, they said, if you lose even a single pound in this study, we are kicking you out of the study. And so a lot of these subjects were actually complaining that they were, oh, I can't eat any more food. I can't eat any more food. They were like, almost like their stomachs were distended, right? But he was like, no, you're not allowed to lose weight. I want to see what the food is doing independent of weight loss. So the results of this study were mind-boggling, mind-boggling. Again, this is 1979, and even today, this, these results are considered ridiculous. So what they found was that the insulin requirements plummeted by an average of 58%, call it 60%, in the group that ate this low-fat diet. But in those that continued to eat a conventional diabetes diet, their insulin requirements did not change at all. Okay, so they were using the same amount of insulin, but the people who ate the low-fat diet cut their insulin use by a total of 58%. Now, 10 out of the 20 subjects who were living with diabetes were able to stop insulin altogether, 100%. And the beauty is that it only took 16 days for these individuals to go from using insulin to not using any insulin, okay? But remember, these subjects had been living with diabetes for anywhere a minimum of two years to 20 years. So imagine this. It's like, imagine if you've been told that you have diabetes and that you're always going to have diabetes and that you're probably going to need more medication over the course of time. Here's some oral hypoglycemic medication. Here's some insulin. Get used to it. It's not going to change. Then somebody comes along and says, hey, what if you just change the way you eat? You change the way you eat. And after having used insulin for multiple years, you get off of insulin in 16 days. How would you feel about that? I feel like the pharmaceutical industry would not be happy. <laughs> exactly right. I would feel pissed off. I mean, I'd feel happy, but also uh -huh. frustrated that nobody told me this earlier, right? But that's what he was showing. He didn't take 100% of his insulin-dependent subjects off of insulin, but he got more than 50% of them off of insulin. And then the rest of them dramatically decreased their insulin use, dramatically. And he also found that their cholesterol levels dropped by almost 30%. And again, all of this happened with zero pounds of weight loss. So that right there is the power of food. Absolutely. And that's actually something I wanted to ask you about because I heard you talk about this and I was mind boggled because we some oftentimes equate weight loss with a drop in a lot of those markers. And of course, healthy weight loss could have a lot of metabolic benefits, but just knowing that it was independent of weight loss is unbelievable. It's mind boggling. And like it was mind boggling back in the 70s. And somehow that information didn't really like, it didn't travel through society very well. It didn't travel through the scientific community. And so to a certain extent, it was like, okay, these studies happen, but 
it didn't change the way that America was eating. It didn't change the way the world was talking about nutrition. And it only got, it went in the opposite direction. It got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. It got lower and lower and lower carbohydrate. And now today we're talking about a, a study that happened almost 40 years ago, and it's still considered one of the best studies done on this topic, right? It's just, it's just mind boggling. It's like, these are just not difficult concepts. They really aren't. Yeah. It's just a question of like, whether the information is being transmitted to people properly and whether or not people have access to truly evidence-based information that can change their life. Exactly. Yeah. It's amazing that that study was so long ago, but even now when people hear it, they're like, wow, as if it's, you know, such a wild concept. I know. It's just unbelievable. Now I'm curious what your diet looks like these days. Cause I know that you mentioned fat and the impact that consuming too much fat could have on us, even if it is plant-based fat. So I'm just curious how you eat today and also what recommendations you'd have for someone who's just embarking on following a plant-based diet. So very good question. If you're going to transition to a plant-based diet, I'm all about it. I think it's a great idea. And I think you're going to derive a number of metabolic as well as uh, mental and physical benefits that come along for the ride. Okay. So chances are not only are you going to be at a lower risk for diabetes and heart disease and cancer and many autoimmune conditions and fatty liver disease and chronic kidney disease and Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Okay. Not only is that going to unfold, but in addition to that, your skin might look better. Your hair might look better. Your eyesight might improve. Your breath might smell better. You might have less body odor. You might go to the bathroom more frequently. You might have less digestive problems. There's all these symptoms that like come along for the ride for free that like it's hard to predict what's going to happen. But the truth is that when you change your diet towards a more plant-focused diet, a lot of those things unfold in many people. And we've seen it over and over and over again. So that's the first thing that I would say. Now, if you are not ready to adopt a fully plant-based diet, I totally understand. And I don't want anybody listening to this podcast to feel pressured to have to go to a 100% plant-based diet because that's what Cyrus told you to do, or that's what you guys are telling people to do. Okay. The truth is that if you want to become a 100% plant-based eater, I'm all about it. I think it's a great idea and you're going to derive a lot of benefits from it. But if you're not ready to go there emotionally or physically or within your family structure, that's okay. All I recommend doing is moving towards a more plant-focused diet and by eating more fruits and vegetables and legumes and whole grains and trying to reduce your intake of animal-based foods over the course of time. If it takes you three months, cool. If it takes you six months, cool. If it takes you a year, totally cool. I got no problem with that. But the idea is to just kind of like move as far as you can in that direction and hopefully you'll feel the difference and you'll see the difference and it'll motivate you to want to keep moving in that direction. What we recommend is to achieve a macronutrient balance of approximately 70-15-15 or 80-10-10. So what that means is we recommend that between 70 and 80% of all the calories you consume come from carbohydrates. And then approximately 10 to 15% of the calories that you consume come from protein and 10 to 15% come from fat. And the way that you can know those numbers for yourself is to just download a diet logging app. If you can find it on the app store, we use this thing called Chronometer because it's very helpful. Get Chronometer, get MyFitnessPal, get any number of diet trackers. It doesn't really matter. And literally just list all of the foods that you're eating on a daily basis and do it for about a week and learn from that information because you'll, you'll learn a lot of really cool information. So if you can kind of construct your plant-based diet to be 70, 15, 15, or 80, 10, 10, then you're moving in the right direction. And that's where we see the most benefit specifically for people living with diabetes, but also people living with heart disease. 
So on a daily basis, what my diet looks like, as an example, is that in the morning I wake up and I eat a pretty decent sized fruit bowl. So I'll have something like, I live in Costa Rica. And as a result of that, I have access to lots of fruits and vegetables over here. And the ones that I love to eat the most of are plantains and papayas and mangoes. So I'll wake up in the morning and I'll eat like a half of one of those big Mexican papayas. And then I might have like one plantain to go along with that, like a raw plantain. So you put the two of those together, put them into a fruit bowl. I'll eat the whole thing up. I'll go and I'll exercise. I'll go do CrossFit for an hour or I'll go mountain biking for an hour and I'll push pretty hard. And then when I come back, that's my opportunity to eat an even larger fruit bowl because why? I love eating fruit. I just really do. So at that point, I'll have something like three plantains with maybe like one or two mangoes and maybe the other half of that papaya that I didn't eat in the morning. My wife is also very helpful in the kitchen and she ends up, she can make me like these giant smoothie bowls that sometimes use frozen berries and frozen bananas, blend the whole thing together, top it with more fruit and uh, go to town on that thing. Then, you know, middle of the afternoon will roll around and I'll sort of start to transition away from fruit and more towards vegetables and beans. I'm infatuated, absolutely infatuated with garbanzo beans. I don't know if you guys have like... Oh yeah, big fans. You like them? Okay, cool. I don't know where this infatuation came from, but somewhere in the past couple of years, I was like, wow, these could be the tastiest things that I've ever eaten before. Yeah, they're amazing. And very versatile. (laughs) Oh yeah, extremely versatile. So there's always a whole pot of garbanzo beans sitting in our fridge. So I'll usually eat like two cups worth of garbanzo beans. I might throw in some vegetables to go along with it, or maybe not. And then dinner time will roll around and I'll eat like a vegetable heavy dish. I'll have some steamed broccoli, steamed cauliflower, maybe a salad that's got some onions and tomatoes and oranges, and maybe like another mango inside of there, and some cucumbers and some carrots, as an example. So if you put all that together, for me personally, because I have a pretty high calorie requirement, I usually eat somewhere between 2,800 and 3,500 calories per day. And the beauty is that I'm able to eat 700 grams of carbohydrate energy per day. Wow. 700 grams of carbohydrate energy, which for your average person living with diabetes, it would take them a week to eat. So I'm eating that 24, every 24 hours. And I can do that using approximately 25 units of insulin per day total. And so if you just do the math on that, what you'll find out is that the sort of like carbohydrate to insulin ratio, which is like a surrogate for your insulin sensitivity, is very high. And that's what we encourage people to do, whether you're living with insulin-dependent diabetes like me and Robbie, or whether you're just a normal person that has nothing to do with diabetes. If you move in that direction and you really maximize your carbohydrate intake and lower your fat and protein intake, truly magical things can happen. And you look good, you feel good, you got a ton of energy, and there's really no complaints. That's incredible. And I think that a big question that people have with a vegan diet is that you're not getting all your essential nutrients and that you must be mineral deficient, nutrient deficient. And so I'm curious what your take is on that and also your viewpoint on supplements. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot, there's a lot of nutritional folklore about the nutritional adequacy of a vegan diet. You've seen it. I've seen it. It's all over the place. The nutrients of concern from what I've learned online are number one, omega-3 fatty acids, number two, protein, Number three, vitamin B12, and then things like zinc and iron. Yeah, so those are the sort of like main five that I've, that I've seen. Okay, and I can sort of dispel every single one of those. Number one, the first one I said is omega-3 fatty acids. This omega-3 fatty acid controversy is so over-exaggerated, it blows my mind. The truth is, if you want a sufficient amount of omega-3 fatty acids, which are absolutely required, okay, your body cannot synthesize them, they're considered essential fatty acids because you cannot make them as a human being. All you have to do is eat one or two, between one and two 
tablespoons of freshly ground chia seeds or freshly ground flax seeds on a daily basis. That is it. That meets your omega-3 nutritional requirements for the day, period, end of story. But omega-3 fatty acids are also found in many other fruits and vegetables. They're all over the place in the plant-based world. It's just that you get a small amount from eating some lettuce and you get a small amount from eating some beans and you get a small amount from having some zucchini. And the collection of all that can add up to meet your nutritional requirements. But even if it doesn't, then have one to two tablespoons of freshly ground chia or flax seeds and problem solved. Robbie and I were very curious about whether or not our omega-3 concentrations were adequate. And so what we did is we went online and we took what's called the omega quant test, which is considered one of the most accurate omega-3 indexes. And so what you do is you basically, they, they mail a kit to your house and then you just like, you poke yourself, you bleed into a tube and then you send it back to them and they analyze your blood. And then they come back and they tell you a couple of things. Number one, what's your omega-3 status? AKA, do you have enough omega-3s floating in your blood? And then number two, what is your considered your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, which is just as an indicator of amount of inflammation that could be present inside of your body. It's a weak indicator of inflammation, but it is a helpful index. So what's considered a good score is if you get your omega-3 index and it comes back and it says that your omega-3 index is 4% or higher. Robbie scored off the charts. He was like 8.28%. And I scored 7.11%. And we took these results and we handed them to other doctors in the plant-based world. And we said, I don't know how to interpret this information. Can you help me? And people, we had multiple doctors who look at this and they were like, wow, how many nuts and seeds are you guys eating on a daily basis? How much flax seeds are you guys eating? How much chia seeds are you guys eating? Because clearly your omega-3 concentrations are pretty darn high. And Robbie and I looked at each other, we're like, we don't really eat that many nuts and seeds. We haven't been doing that for the last, I don't know, 12, 15 years. Should we be? And they were like, wait, 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 you're telling me that your omega-3 concentrations are between seven and 8%, but yet your intake of nuts and seeds is actually quite low? And our answer was, yes, it absolutely is. So of course, we're an N of two experiment. And I'm not suggesting that Robbie and I, you know, you should base all of your nutritional requirements based off of what's happening inside of our body. But we see this over and over and over again with people who are eating a truly clean, whole food, plant-based diet that is, is devoid, literally devoid of packaged and processed foods. The cleaner your diet gets, the easier it is to maintain an adequate or, or superior to adequate omega-3 index. Okay? That's the first one. Protein. This is so exaggerated. It blows my mind. Okay? If you actually want to know how much protein you're supposed to be eating, a simple way to calculate it is this. You take your body weight in kilograms and you multiply that by 0.8. And that is the number of grams of protein that it would be recommended to be eating on a daily basis. Okay? So Lorena, let's take you as an example. What's your body weight? 128. Okay. So you're 128 pounds. If we uh, calculate the number of kilograms, you are 58 kilograms. So we take that number 58 and we multiply it by 0.8. And that right there gives us 46 grams of protein per day. That would meet your nutritional requirements for the day. Have you ever logged your diet to try and find out what you're eating on a daily basis? I have, and I've definitely surpassed the recommended requirement, even just eating completely plant-based. Yeah, exactly right. So getting 46 grams of protein on a daily basis is like is not hard to do. I right. mean, you could do that just by eating fruits, vegetables. You don't even have to have legumes in your diet, which tend to be more protein rich. You don't have to have whole grains in your diet if you don't want them. It'll just help contribute towards that number. Jonathan, how about you? I weigh about 175. Okay. So you're 175 divided by 2.2. You multiply that by 0.8. And the number is 63 grams of protein right there. Have you ever figured out how much protein you're eating? 
I haven't tracked it in a long time, but I definitely think I'm past that number just, you know, even before lunch, just between my morning, between the fruits and the shake that I have. And I do have nuts and seeds and, and all of those great things as well. So I definitely think I'm meeting at least yeah. the daily requirement for my weight. There you go. That, it's, it's exactly right. So it's not that, that's not that complicated. Now, if you were a competitive athlete, okay, and you were going to the gym and you were really pushing hard, what that would mean is that you would be sort of like exercising your muscle tissue. You would be contracting and elongating your muscle fibers frequently. And that would lead to more micro tears in your muscle fiber, which would mean that your protein intake, your protein requirements would increase in order to repair the damage that's caused by exercise. So this number of 0.8 grams per kilogram is a number that's sort of like, you know, thrown around for like the general population. But if you're active, you can bring that number up to one gram per kilogram or 1.2 grams per kilogram. But anything beyond, you know, 1.3, anything beyond that doesn't necessarily, I've never seen any evidence that's like, that it's necessary to go that high. So even in your particular situation, like let's say you became a, a competitive weightlifter, right? And you wanted to eat 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight, you'd have to eat 95 grams of protein per day. And again, that would be significantly more challenging to get to 95, but you can certainly do that on a plant-based diet. And yeah. again, if you're eating things like garbanzo beans or black beans or red beans or any kind of legume, each cup of cooked legumes is equivalent to about 15 to 20 grams of protein. So just do the math. You just have one or two of those per day in addition to a bunch of other foods and like, boom, all of a sudden your protein intake is easily met. Yeah. And we see all these vegan bodybuilders that are extremely competitive with bodybuilders who follow a full animal-based diet and they beat them in so many different competitions and mm -hmm. you know, their muscle mass and the gains that they get are significant. A hundred percent. And I'm, you know, like I was saying earlier, I'm part of a CrossFit community here down in Costa Rica. It's a small community, but there are some extremely talented athletes that work out at our gym. And we've gone to competitions together and kind of worked out and really trained each other to be stronger and stronger. Four of the top six athletes are 100% plant-based. And that's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence at all. And they've noticed the same thing that I've noticed, which is that when you eat 100% plant-based diet, not only is your ability to perform enhanced, but your ability to recover, that's the best part. You can recover so quickly on a plant-based diet that it enables you to work out 20, 30, 40% as much. So you're actually getting more training in than you would be otherwise. And as a result of that, you can actually become stronger much faster. Yeah. And I feel that, you know, even in my fitness goals, since I've gone fully plant-based, I've met more of my fitness goals. I have more energy during my workouts. I could work out for longer than I have before. So I definitely uh, you've noticed have it. experienced that. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a cool feeling, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. So then the other things that we were talking about here, we got zinc, we got iron, and then there was one other vitamin B12. Elf. Okay. Mm -hmm. Vitamin B12, just get a vitamin B12 supplement, period, end of story. No need to have any longer conversation about it. Vitamin B12 is found inside of animal products, not because animals make vitamin B12. It's because the bacteria that are found inside of the soil are manufacturing B12. So a land grazing animal like a cow or a, uh, a sheep, you know, they go and they eat a bunch of grass. They're eating grass plus a bunch of bacteria that are in the soil and then they end up absorbing the B12 from those bacteria, and then the B12 gets inside of their tissue. And then when you go to eat that animal, you get the vitamin B12 from that animal, but it's just sort of like a, the animal's just a vehicle for giving the B12. Over the course of time, as nutrient, the nutrient quality of soil has gone down, the vitamin B12 content of most soil has gone down dramatically. So even animal eaters, or I should say, you know, non-plant-based eaters, 
are finding that they have to start supplementing with vitamin B12 as well these days because the soil just doesn't have the same quality that it used to. If you're eating a 100% plant-based diet, then good luck. Chances of you getting an adequate vitamin B12 concentration are basically as close to zero as possible. So all you got to do is go to the store, pick up a vitamin B12 supplement, whether it's liquid or whether it's a pill, and then take that on a daily or weekly basis. Okay, good recommendation is to take something like 2,500 micrograms of vitamin B12 once per week. And if you do that, then boom, problem solved. You don't have to worry about vitamin B12 status. Iron. Iron is another conversation that just gets so overblown. It's just unbelievable. There's two types of iron in this world. Okay, There is what's called heme iron and non-heme iron. Heme iron comes from animals. It's a type of iron that is found only in the animal world. And non-heme iron is found in the plant-based world. And it turns out that if you do some experiments to try and find out what form of iron is quote unquote better, what you'll find is that the heme iron that comes from animal foods is actually more absorbable. Okay, so it's easier to absorb that form, that version of iron into your body. And as a result of that, it's canonically been considered to be better because you can just absorb more from the food that you eat. But what researchers have actually found out over the course of the last 10 to 15 years is that just because you can absorb more from animal-based food does not mean it's better. Quantity is important, but quality is more important. And the reason why animal-based heme iron may not actually be as effective is because non-heme iron, even though it's less absorbable, is less oxidative, meaning it doesn't oxidize inside of tissues as easily. Heme iron can oxidize very easily. And so heme iron has actually been implicated in a number of disease-causing pathologies, including specifically in diabetes, it can antagonize the action of beta cells that secrete insulin. It can actually cause beta cell death, and uh, that is not a very good thing. In addition to that, it also has some vascular it can cause blood flow problems and it can damage the lining of blood vessels. And anytime you do that, you're putting yourself at risk for cardiovascular disease. So as a result of that, eating non-heme iron is actually now considered to be much more beneficial. And there's some studies that demonstrate that a reduction in heme iron can translate to a significant improvement in diabetes health and vascular health at the same time. That's unbelievable. It's crazy. But again, yeah, it's another story that just confuses people left and right. Now, if someone is diabetic and wants to start embracing a more plant-based approach, or if someone is not diabetic and just wants to follow a more plant-based approach, what's the best way to reach you guys and work with you? So the easiest thing to do is to go to www.masteringdiabetes.org. And there we have a website which has, it's a very active website, and we're constantly writing scientific articles and we are showcasing testimonials of people that have gone through our program and we have a podcast and we have a YouTube channel and you can sort of learn about all those things um, on the website. So just go to masteringdiabetes.org. You can check out the book that we just wrote, which came out in the end of February and it turned into a New York Times bestseller, which we're very, very excited about. Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, you know, masteringdiabetes.org is sort of your one-stop shop for learning about how to implement our teachings into your daily life. The sort of bread and butter of what we do is we have a coaching program and we have a methodology that has impacted the lives now of, I don't even know, 10,000 plus people over the course of multiple years. The methodology that we teach basically allows you to make changes to your diet, 
and interact with other people in our online community that have already done the same thing and that are doing the same thing and to get guidance from our team of expert coaches that can give you sort of step-by-step instructions of like, here's what to do now, here's what to not do now, and so on and so forth. That's amazing. I think that a lot of people could benefit from that because one, it keeps you accountable. And two, all of us sometimes have confusion on whether we're eating the right things, whether we're eating enough or or sometimes too much. So I think having a coach and a community could definitely be really beneficial. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And I mean, I'll be the first person to admit that like what we've built is exactly what Robbie and I would have wanted or did want when we were first diagnosed with diabetes, we were looking for other people that were going, we were looking for answers and we were motivated to want to make change to our life. And it just literally did not exist. So we said, screw it, let's go build it. Yeah. That's the best approach. If it's not already there, you know, build it. Yeah, exactly. If you build it, they will come. Exactly. Now, a question that we like to ask our guests, obviously you've learned so much over your journey. Um, If you could go back and give any sort of advice to your 20 year old self, whether it be health related, business related, just lifestyle related, what would that advice be and why? Here's the main advice that I would give. This may sound cliche, but trust your intuition. Just trust it. The reason I say that is because back when I was in 2003, a year after I had been diagnosed with diabetes, and I was in my, what I consider, low-carbohydrate purgatory, and I didn't like myself. I was nervous. I was anxious. I was depressed. My glucose was all over the place, and I felt terrible. I came home from work one day. I checked my blood glucose, and my blood glucose was like in the 200s. And I was so frustrated because I had been doing everything that I was told to do, eating a low-carbohydrate diet, exercising, keeping my stress levels low, drinking plenty of water, and yet my glucose was still uncontrollable. So I got super frustrated and I just dropped my blood glucose meter and I fell backwards and I sank into the couch, into this giant abyss. And I just started crying because I was so frustrated. And in that moment, there was literally a voice inside of my head and the voice said, Cyrus, learn how to eat. You don't know how to eat. Figure it out and your whole life will change in front of you. And so I did. And I listened to that voice and it was the single smartest decision I've made as a human being. I swear to you. Wow. Since that time, that voice has come back over and over and over again and taught me different things. And when I hear that voice, I pay attention to it 100% of the time. And so if there is a voice, I know there's a voice inside of your head and there's a voice inside of everybody's head. That voice often has the answer. And I would strongly encourage you to listen to that voice rather than putting that voice aside and trying to use a different part of your brain to rationalize a problem. Your intuition is incredibly smart. And if you give it the opportunity, it'll probably teach you the right thing. Definitely. And I think that's a good lesson for a lot of people, especially with the rise of social media. We know what's best for us. So try not to look to others for approval or what you think you should be doing. A hundred percent. You're right. Social media is just like, it it becomes so distracting these days. And uh, there's so much information at all times. And yet I feel like a a lot of people just feel dumber and dumber and dumber over the course of time because they're farther and farther away from what they actually do know. Yep. And from their truth. Now, one final question that we love to ask all our guests, because this is the down to earth podcast. So what does the term down to earth mean to you? Man, it means so many things. It means so many things. I'd say... I could argue being down to earth means um, being a super relatable human being that has good communication skills with others and takes life as it comes and lives in a low stress environment and just sort of like allows life to unfold, super down to earth, very easy to get along with. Another thing that I could say is that as far as this nutrition topic is concerned, getting down to earth means eating food that's grown in the ground. It's just that simple. I never really thought about it until this very moment right now, but if you eat down to earth, I think your life can unfold in a bazillion ways that are beneficial and you probably don't even know what they are right now. 
And that's part of the magic. I love that. That's so spot on. <laughs> well, you thanks. guys ask great questions. Yes, for sure. And we, again, we really enjoyed speaking with you. You shared so much valuable information with us today and some revolutionary information that I know for a lot of people listening, it'll be the first time that they heard this incredible information. So again, I want to thank you so much for joining us and for sharing so much wisdom with us that I know will, will hopefully benefit a tremendous amount of lives. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lorna. You guys are awesome. And um, appreciate being on the podcast today. And, and I really do hope that this information changes people's lives. It's the number one thing that I care about. And um, thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode with Cyrus Cambada from Mastering Diabetes. Cyrus shared so much mind-blowing research with us and really dived deep into the science and how our bodies operate on a biochemical level. We hope Cyrus left you inspired to be your best health advocate and not just take the mainstream opinion at face value. Do your research and go with your intuition because that oftentimes will not lead you astray. Be sure to check out Cyrus and Robbie's New York Times bestselling book, Mastering Diabetes, and find all of their work and research on masteringdiabetes.org. As always, you can email us at podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com or get in touch on Instagram at drinkdte. In the meantime, stay healthy and stay hydrated. Cheers. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.